As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. You're listening to Nakedly Examined Music, a podcast about songs and songwriters. My name is Mark Linsenmeyer. My guest for episode 177 is Susan Catanio. She teaches songwriting at Berklee College of Music in Boston, and she's released six albums of her songs since 2009, starting out, as she will detail, as a wannabe country songwriter who gradually took up singing her own stuff and then getting out of Nashville and changing her whole style. You're right now hearing Work Hard, Love Harder from her 2017 album, The Hammer and the Heart. That is the last album before her new one, All Is Quiet. We're going to talk about the song Broken Things from that album and look back to the 2014 album Haunted Heart with the song Revival and look all the way back to Heaven to Heartache from 2011. That's her second album. The song is called Shave. We'll conclude by listening to another song from the new album Time Plus Love Plus Gravity. For more information, please see SusanCatanio.com. For more about this podcast, check out NakedlyExaminedMusic.com. If you enjoy it, I request that you leave a nice rating or review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. So I will play a little bit of Work Hard, Love Harder from The Hammer in the Heart 2017 to warm folks up. That is, of course, a recent album. Often I play like an old thing, but this seems to be your biggest hit on Spotify? What is the sort of shape of your career? I know as an academic, you don't have the normal, if I don't get the deal by, you know, album two, then I'm, you know, the, you have a totally different career path. Can you give us a little outline of that before we get into the, the new song? My career path has been different because I started out thinking that I was going to be a Nashville writer. So a lot of my earlier albums have a more kind of Nashville, more modern country sound. And then my career kind of took a left turn and I became an Americana artist. And so the three albums, Haunted Heart, The Hammer in the Heart, and the latest one, All is Quiet, are kind of writing from a more authentic place. But yet The Hammer in the Heart, we had a lot of guest performers. I see the Bottle Rockets are on that tune. And that seems more of a, like an obvious a genre thing. I don't know. It sounds like it should be a TV show theme song. Has it gotten traction? I wish it would be a TV show. Let's put that out into the universe from your lips to God's ears. But no, what happened for The Hammer and the Heart is that each of my albums has had kind of a different focus. And that one, because it's a double album, I was trying to kind of share my love of collaboration. And I produced it myself. And so I literally went to all of my favorite people in the world 
musically and was like, let's do something together, whether it was a, an engineer that I had like to work with in a different studio or a co-writer or, you know, even like different players. So that has like 41 musicians on it. <laughs> it was like a circus. And the Bottle Rockets, I had been friends with the Bottle Rockets forever and had wanted to do something with them. And so I flew out to St. Louis and recorded two songs with them. And it was just like, they're amazing. It has the Bottle Rockets on it. It has Mark Arelli on it, who's a, a friend and co-writer of mine. And Bill Kirchin, who I've worked with a lot from Texas. So yeah, it's it's a lot of that. <laughs> All right. So more adapting to their sound, which in this case means you are going back to those Nashville roots a bit more. Well, let's get the transition. We're going to listen to Broken Things from the brand new album, All Is Quiet. Can you say a few words about it before we insert it in full? In 2017, I fell headfirst down a flight of stairs and I broke many things in my body and needed many surgeries. And it was this really super long recovery period. And I didn't get better for about seven months. And when I finally got better, I was like, what is the lesson here? <laughs> Why did that happen to me? And I started thinking about the fact that all of us have had kind of accidents or things that have happened to us that have left us scars, whether they're visible scars or they're emotional scars. But you have to kind of have had the experience before you can... I guess, process it and experience it and get what the meaning of it from. And for me, Broken Things became about the fact that I am all of the things, all of the experiences that have happened to me. And I appreciate that because I wouldn't have arrived here. I wouldn't have written the songs that I've written if I hadn't had the life experiences that got me there. And Broken Things is kind of about that and kind of honoring that. Search for buried treasure Broken china hiding in the dirt A yellow rose, the ghost of a teacup Daisies on the hint of a plate Coming up like crocuses out of the earth We lay them on the Cause a life will live 
Can you say a little about the choice of palette for this one that you weren't going around and collaborating with a lot of bands? You were picking This Is My Sound. I noticed you're not even credited on guitar in a lot of these songs, right? You got a separate acoustic person and an electric person. Is it just that if I'm going to use an acoustic, I'm not going to be limited by my own strumming. I'm going to you know, get somebody that can. You know, the hammer in the heart for me, double album, huge sound, lots of players. It felt very much like a circus. Like it was like, oh, I'm doing this and I'm doing this, I'm doing this. And so I pretty much knew that after that extravaganza that I had put out in 2017, that I wanted this next album to be pared back. (laughs) And so initially I was like, oh, I'm going to call this album All Is Quiet because I'm at an age when my kids have gone away to college and I'm suddenly a parent who's at home alone. I have empty nest syndrome. And I was like, oh, this is just going to be about what it's like to be after the kids have grown up. But the fact is that as I was starting to work on this album, COVID struck and suddenly everything was shut down. And my kids, right? And then my kids who were in college at the time came home. So actually things weren't quiet in our house. But what happened for me is that, I don't know, there was so much uncertainty and I had so much worry at the beginning. And for the first time ever in my life, I've always been able to kind of take what I'm feeling, what I'm doing and translate it into song or translate it into a short story or some form of creative. That's how I deal with the world is that I translate it into art. And for the first time ever in 2020, I felt like I had nothing to say. All momentum that I had had in my career felt like it had stalled. Remember, we didn't realize, we didn't know if anybody was going to be ever performing live again. Do you remember? Everything was so uncertain. And so suddenly the idea of something being all as quiet had this, for me, a very profound and sad meaning of the fact that I wasn't sure if I had anything left to say creatively. And so I was like, this album is going to be not just paired back instrumentally, it's actually going to be an acoustic album. And I'm lucky in that I live in the town of Boston and I am friends with these two amazing guitarists who one is right now on tour with Bonnie Raitt and the other one is on tour with Jackson Brown. So, you know, Jackson Brown, Bonnie Raitt, Susan Catania. (laughs) And so because everybody was recording remotely, 
I would record my guitar part, my vocals, send it to Connecticut, where my co-producer, Lauren Entress, was there. And Kevin Berry would drive down and record his acoustic guitar part. And then we would send it to Duke Levine, who was in Malden, and he would record his part. And then it would get sent back to me. And then I would put on the final vocals. So it was a very different project. I mean, I was so crazy that I made an album with these two friends of mine and I didn't see, or three friends of mine, and I didn't see them for like two years. Just insane. But the song, like I would say, whereas the hammer and the heart energy of that album feels much more outward, right? It was just like this big, loud, outward sound. And all is quiet for me felt very internal. I wrote it all in this little room. And therefore, it allowed me to kind of explore some really deep and personal themes and also to be a little more intimate and vulnerable than I have ever been on any album. So you had a demo of you playing guitar and then you just erased that. But you had the tempo and everything set so you could. Yeah. So I would create on GarageBand. I would just do a simple guitar vocal with a separate guitar track, separate vocal track with all my harmonies on it at the tempo. And then I would send it to them. And then, and what was cool is that because it was just me in this room, the songs, I really enjoyed creating a lot of harmonies with them. And sometimes the harmonies, I would send the harmonies with the lead vocal. And that meant that Kevin and Duke would have to kind of play their parts around what my harmony part was. So it was all about kind of like listening to what I was doing vocally. And then they're wonderful at responding musically on guitar to whatever I was creating vocally. So did that introduce, I guess, having that as, as the core ensemble sort of put a limit on how how dynamic it's going to get, right? You're not going to have the chorus here. There's a, a thing that I, I often, I don't know if there's a technical term for it that I refer to it as the beauty drop, which was a thing, especially in the 80s. Like, think about big David Foster things where they're like, and then you hit the giant chorus and you literally say the word beauty on that, you know, so the, but it does its vocal thing. It resolves and we're back. Like, it's not like we're entering the new, this is the pretty part. Like, no, the whole thing is pretty. And it's just a matter of subtle using more pitch than dynamics than actual volume to distinguish between the sections. Well, and certainly, yeah, I mean, in, in that song, for me, what I like about it is I like to think of the lyric as it's almost like a map where the melody is, is like uh, there are peaks and valleys to the melody. And I liked the fact that when I wrote it, the verses are all uh, ascending line digging in the garden. So it's all going up, 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 up. And then finally, when we get to the chorus, the chorus is suspended and then descending. So I really liked that part of it because I think that I couldn't introduce, you know, a shaker and an organ. And so I wasn't really allowed or I didn't allow myself to use multiple instruments to kind of create variation and contrast. I did that through melody and I did that through harmony. Well, and the two things that you mentioned, the verse and then the chorus, let me actually play the 30 seconds in the thing in between that. A yellow rose, a ghost of a teacup, daisies on the hint of a plate, coming up like crocuses out of the earth. The second half of the verse, 
or the second verse that you get to play with it more. Let's throw the vocal higher. Let's let it settle down a little bit. And the last line of that, where you're doing all these offbeats, you know, that if you could have actually been very jagged about it, but again, it's subtlety, just playing with the voice there. Can you say a little about your use of, was that in the original conception in terms of you're going up and then in the chorus, you're going down, but here in between, or was this a sort of a vocal improv as you're developing it and recording it? No, it was something that I wrote from the beginning. So what was so interesting about that song is that I wrote the intro and it was like, what am I going to sing on this? And I had this idea of writing. I'm from New Jersey and I lived in a house that I think was built in the 1800s or something like that. And we used to go out into our garden and my mom would, you know, had a, like a home garden and she would dig it up and we'd find all this old china. Because I guess in the old days, when you would break china, like you'd break a plate or break a teacup, you'd throw it out into your garden. So we were always kind of uncovering pieces of china that had like designs on them that were from the 1800s. It was pretty cool. So I wanted to kind of like create this very light, lilting melody for this delicate thing that I was trying to say. So one of the choices that I made on purpose, which you'll notice a difference when you listen to The Hammer and the Heart, for example, or even Haunted Heart, the album before that one, most of the songs on All is Quiet are in a higher tessaratura, meaning that I pitched it up higher. So I'm really singing with my head voice rather than my chest voice. And so already I'm in like a much higher place than I'm singing normally. And then I made the decision in the second half of that verse to make it like even more like floaty, even more like lighter. And so it was kind of nice to be able to kind of reach those top notes when I'm talking about the China. I think the whole song exists in a much higher place musically Mm -hmm. than certainly than other ballads that I've sung in the past. What's so funny for me, this album, I think earlier in my career, I was always chasing perfection you know, the perfect vocal, the perfect lyric, the perfect melody. And with this one, because it felt so vulnerable, and I didn't know if anybody was going to ever hear it. I didn't even know if I was going to release it. Like (laughs) I was just doing this for myself. And so I thought instead of trying to chase vocal perfection, I more wanted to chase vocal vulnerability. And I think that using a lot of my upper range allowed me to kind of have that sound to my voice, a little bit of vulnerable, a little bit of wispiness that I thought was really appropriate for the song and for the themes that I was singing about. Yeah, it's the most early Joni Mitchell sounding, you know, she's an influence listed on your bio. So I, yeah, I definitely. Which is funny that she could only do that or chose to do that at the age of 20. And then the voice just gradually went down and down. Right. I know. Isn't that funny? And then, you know, I'm like, I'm not in my 20s, obviously. And I've chosen to go really, really high on this this album. It's funny. Well, I guess you have to. So in the Ghost of a Teacup line, do something with it because there are more words. Yeah, You didn't just do digging in the garden, and just do the same, the second verse, the same. So was that because you already had a... Like when you're writing the poetry of it, are you off somewhere away from an instrument and you don't necessarily know what the melody is going to be? Or is it a very unified thing that you're sitting at your guitar already and constructing these lyrics to fill the musical spots? I'm so glad you asked that. That's like such an awesome question, because honestly, I love extending the lines. So you'll notice I do that a lot in my songs. It's something that I'll establish a pattern in the next time you come around to that pattern, I will have elongated it or shortened it. 
I probably do it because I'm like, oh, it's too boring to sing the same thing. (laughs) My ADD will come in. But I really enjoy when as a listener, like you're hearing something and you're like, okay, this is the pattern. And when you break the pattern, your listeners suddenly there's a moment where they're like, wait, what are we doing? And then they're paying attention because like, what's going to happen in the song next? And I think that that's a device that I use in a lot of my songs, actually, from way, way back. So you'll find that I usually have like two lines and then the third line, if it's the same, I will do something to it. I'll shorten it, lengthen it, change the rhythm of it. So in the chorus, oh, the beauty of broken things, it seems like on first listen that there should be, you know, after broken things should be fully as long as the previous line. So in other words, it makes the whole thing, what, six measures long between those two lines as opposed to eight. Whereas you've just set up in the pre-chorus, like you could have done the same thing, but no, you let lay them on in the still in the sun delicate and fragile everyone you let the five seven really soak in and build the tension so we can release this with the chorus but then once it's settled like just get to the next one and in fact then not having a fourth line instead of having another thing in broken things answer the second beauty let's let the next verse or the bridge or whatever is next answer that instead what i love about that chorus is that it goes the beauty of broken things And then it just says the beauty. So it doesn't say the beauty of broken things. Or think of a rhyme with things. Or think of a rhyme with things. And and love it brings. Yeah. Oh, oh, and the love (laughs) it brings. Why did I have you, Mark, as my (laughs) co-writer? It's kind of interesting because I think that a lot of attention in songs is given to what is the first line of the song? People are like, what are great opening lines of a song? But I also feel like there are opportunities within a song to kind of think about what you're leaving your listener with. And certainly the last line of the chorus, how do I want to leave the song? How do I want to leave the main repeating part? And I wanted to leave it instead of focusing on the broken things, I wanted to leave it on the beauty. So I actually did that intentionally. I made it the beauty of broken things, the beauty, because I wanted that to be emphasized. It's a positive song even though it's about all the trials and tribulations that one has as a human on this earth. Well, speaking of the first line, so your first line is sort of the most mundane of the song. We're digging in a garden. We're just setting up a scene as opposed to we are cut with memories, like having that nice image in there, that unique combination of words. Colors come together in a holy hue. Like that's where it gets by the end of the second verse. What is your sort of early verse, late verse theory. As a songwriting professor, I feel like I can actually ask you, you probably do have a philosophy about that. Obviously, like every song is different, right? So, you know, it depends on like what the point of the song is. If the point of the song is to like get everybody to get up and dance, then I'm not really going to hit you with like the intense stuff first verse. I'll work my way up to it. But what I like to do usually, at least, is I like to kind of paint the scene because I want people to have a visual. I feel like a visual is almost like I'm throwing paint at a canvas. That's the visual. And then that paint drips through all of the feeling that I'm going to tell you all about. And so for me, verse one usually is something where I want to give you something to look at. And then verse two and the middle section of the song is how I want you to feel about that. Okay. And then in this case, the bridge is where you just, here's the manifesto. Live every day to its fullest. You know, put stuff, whatever the message is, just blatant. I guess feel the edges. There's some still metaphor and things in there 
it's not straightforwardly and make sure to live life for today, you know, or whatever the... Well, and it's funny because I performed that song a few times because I'd written it, I wrote it in 20... So I had the accident in 2017 and I wrote the song probably in 2019, early 2019. And I performed it without the bridge because I didn't know whether I wanted to say a bridge. And then I was like, no, you know, on this song, because it kind of harkened back to a more folk style, I was like, maybe I can kind of indulge myself and actually have a bridge that says something blatantly like that. And I'm okay with that. Like, I think it's all right. I don't do that a lot in my songs. I I tend to not be like, and this is the message. But I think for that song, I liked the way that the end of the bridge goes. You take each day a gift that is unspoken and see the beauty in the broken. So I liked that part of it. I am very grateful to our recurring sponsors that make this show possible, including Nebbia, a high-powered, high-tech innovator in the area of showering. Nebbia was started by engineers that previously worked at Tesla, NASA, and Apple who were passionate about saving the planet. We have a real water crisis in our world, and particularly in the western half of our country right now, as many of you know or are experiencing. So these folks wanted to design a superior shower experience that would use less water. Tim Cook was their first investor, and they partnered with industry leaders Moen, to create the Nebbia by Moen Spa Shower, which uses atomized droplets to heat up the environment of your shower. They sent me one of these. I have long talked about what a luxurious experience this is. A high-pressure shower head does the job, rinses even the thickest hair. But then they introduced the Quattro, their most affordable shower yet, which they also sent me. And now I can experience four spray modes including two powerful high-pressure spray modes in addition to the spa spray. So now it satisfies all types of water preferences. And it is the easiest installation yet, a three-minute process as easy as changing a light bulb, available as a fixed rain shower or hand shower version. Both are made with recycled ocean plastic, using manufacturing processes not only for the shower, but for their shower curtains, bath mats, hooks, shower shelves that are super sustainable, Each mode of the shower saves 40 to 50% of water compared to traditional shower. So it's really going to pay for itself over not that much time. Nebbia by Moen Quattro starts at just $119 exclusively on Nebbia.com. And Nebbia gave us a special discount just for our community. Go to Nebbia.com slash N-E-M. Use code N-E-M at checkout to get 10% off all Nebbia products. Again, go to nebbia.com slash N-E-M. That's N-E-B-I-A dot com slash N-E-M to check out what they have to offer and save 10% with the code N-E-M. Based on the other songs we're going to cover here, I think even just having a big old chorus like that is not necessarily something that you always do. Let's get Revival from Haunted Heart out there, 2014. Can you say a few words about this before we hear it? This song is so interesting because... As I said, I was a Nashville songwriter. I went down there. I pitched songs for other artists. I never really, because we had little kids. So I was like, I'm not touring and I'm not going to be like the star on the stage. I'm just going to write for others. And I had been doing that for a while. And I decided that that wasn't me. That really wasn't me. I, I had started to perform those songs that I had written for other people. So I was kind of a pop country artist for a bit. And it felt like I was wearing somebody else's clothing. 
I remember being in Nashville at one point and you can't see me, but I wear glasses and I can't see without my glasses and I can't wear contacts. And they told me I couldn't wear my glasses because it was just too different looking. And so I went around Nashville pretty much blind for a few years, not seeing people, meeting people, not knowing what they really looked like, and really not being myself, like not writing the kind of music that I really felt was important to me. And I suddenly was like, I can't do that. I have to write something that means something. I can't just always write about a truck because that's the trope that is expected (laughs) of me. And so this whole album, Haunted Heart, just came from a point where I was like, screw it. I'm going to write what I want to write. And it's so funny because that's the album that started to really get my career going. It was when I finally was like, screw it. I'm just doing what I want to do. And so Revival, oh gosh, we're getting into all the important things in my life. So uh, another accident happened to me where I, I saved someone's life, which was pretty great because I saved their life. But it was really traumatic because it was actually an accident. So it was a lot of, was very visual and terrible. And the person whose life I saved was in the ICU and their husband is a preacher. So we were sitting in the ICU together like three days before Christmas. Her husband was like, Jesus was was there to, that you, Jesus came and helped you save my wife. And I'm like, I'm not so sure. I'm not so sure. Jesus was there when I was doing CPR. You're like, I don't know. I don't know. And I guess I was thinking about this. I was thinking about the intersection between faith and make believe. And the cool story about revival is that I dreamt this entire song. I went to sleep and I dreamt I was writing it. And I woke up at three o'clock in the morning. And I wrote down all the lyrics on a Kleenex box that was next to my bed, all of the lyrics. And then a half an hour later, I got up and my husband was like, what are you doing? I'm like, I have to record this song. It's so interesting because the song is about a revival. And I woke up in the morning and I did not know what a revival was. And in my dream, I asked my co-writer, because I was co-writing in the dream, I was like, what is a, what is a revival? And my co-writer was like, oh, it just Google it. And I woke up in the morning and Googled a revival. And it's that whole thing where like they put up a tent and the preacher comes and, you know, there's snakes and people are speaking in tongues. And I think it's so interesting that first of all, that that song just came to me like that. Second of all, thinking about the fact of who gave me that song, like what, you know, thinking of the fact, well, did the muse, did God, did Buddha, who gave me that song? And the fact that it it really is about what I was thinking about, which is the preacher that was sitting next to me, he firmly believed that God had intervened on his wife's behalf. And I wasn't so sure, but it didn't really matter because she survived. And so it all ended well. Kansas rain Waiting to see who's going 
gonna get saved So gather round your faithful Go on and get grateful Cause that man's got the heat In the heels of his hands Come on in and find a folding chair Close your eyes and say a prayer Preacher rolls like thunder on the stage It's a dollar to be saved So gather round your faithful Go on and get grateful Cause that man's got the heat The heat in his hands The tennis hot Music grows. Some would swear that God is standing close. I just came to see the show. What made you match this tone? It's kind of a sinister, dark, this minor key thing with this theme. Is it, there's hucksterism going on? Is this a commentary about, because it sounds like it's just a short story. Like you're describing what's going on. I like that you say that this is a dream because it explains why it doesn't go as far narratively as I would expect. That you're sort of sketching out this picture and this image and, all right, well, now there's a bridge and you make a comment and that now the tent is coming down, but it's a snapshot. It's not like, and then 
the man arose and was healed. And I thought that was goofy or, you know, it's, it's, there's lots, if you were writing this as a short story, it would have done something else. But if you dreamt it and dreamt the whole song, then like, well, that's all there is. You can't add another verse at the end. No. And in fact, every, I'm a huge editor. So when I write my songs, I rewrite them and rewrite them and rewrite them a ton, a ton, a ton. And it feels like a puzzle to me where it's like, where does the verb go? It goes over here. Okay, I'll put it over here. You know, like I'm constantly like trying different formats for a song, different tempos, different everything. And this one, I did not touch. I just left it because I felt like this is how it came out. But for me, I think the fact that I wrote it about this incredibly traumatic experience for me that came into the music. You know, it really was like the bridge is the ten is hot, the music grows. Some would swear that God is standing close, but I just came here for the show. I felt very, it feels terrible to say I felt ambivalent about saving someone's life, but it was so, it was great and so traumatic for me that I think that that level of, you know, distress or whatever panic kind of came into the song. Like it kind of like affected how I wrote it. I really wanted it to be in between, you know, some people are coming. If you think about a revival, there are people supposedly who are like marks, right? They come in, they're paid by the preaching group and they're paid to, I can walk again, you know, but for some people, that is a real experience. For some people, they come and they are moved and they are they feel the faith and they, they for them, it's a real experience, even though for others, it's make-believe. This was not a literal, the journey from that experience that you described or alluded to, to the story, the picture that you're painting. It sounds like the only connecting tissue was the attitude of the husband of the person suggesting this religious, you know, they got you reflecting on then and this being sort of an extreme example that I don't know how many of us have been to something like this, but we've all seen movies and read about this kind of thing. Using this, that's only sort of tangentially or obliquely related to your actual experience to get catharsis from that experience, as opposed to, I'm going to try to write about that experience, or it seems like you could write a whole freaking album of different aspects of like, and I still have PTSD and today I have the night terrors and well, yeah, sir. Well, and I think, you know, the title of the album is haunted heart and the title track from that album is about that feeling of being like caught in a haunted heart. Like that album really reflected, first of all, it reflected my leaving Nashville behind writing my truth, which was cool. Second thing it reflected was really like writing how I was feeling. And it meant that there are some songs on that album that are like, you hurt my feelings. So I'm actually going to write a song about you. (laughs) So there was a little revenge going on in there, in that album. Related Um, to the Nashville life of professional slights or or this is um, personal? Well, the music life, I mean, no, not necessarily Nashville. Well, a little Nashville, (laughs) but, you know, definitely some things that happened in my career down there that made me reflect in music. The fact that that my brain, for some reason, chose chose this super niche. It's like taking place in Kansas. Like, it's so interesting that it was that that's where that my brain went. My brain didn't go to, you know, like some other religious experience. It, it went to like the sham aspect of religion, but also left you a little bit kind of wondering. I think that's so I don't know why that happened, but man. I wish all my songs came out that easy. <laughs> Unfortunately, they don't. They're usually much harder to write. 
Well, and stylistically, I mean, so you mentioned the haunted heart. That is like the jazz standard. So that seems like if the move toward authenticity is away from genre work, I say in quotes, then doing a token jazz, a different genre than you were doing before, but it's still like not necessarily, or is this a matter of kind of finding your way or thinking about how you can't just express a raw emotion unless you're a like Laurie Anderson spoken word artist, right? Like that is what music is for is to dress these things up is to give you some channels that we've inherited that we've you know gotten from the back of our mind from our listening all these years to plug in something. And so here we've got by the end in the heels of his hands, like you have some sort of gospel lines, the way that you're singing it. Most of the song is not like that. Most of the song is sort of this dark, I don't know, Johnny Cash or something, you know, whatever the dark country minor key. And then having that gospel thing only come out. Whereas if you sort of made the whole thing more, what Lyle Lovett gospel, Texas, like it could come on in to the revival or whatever, instead of having this sort of, I guess you're mentioning the snakes that, you know, having serpentine melodies here in the chorus in particular, just making the whole thing sound sinister. But yet you still allow yourself to do, I guess it's next door to gospel because it was not unnatural then for you to do that little elaboration at the end. Yeah, definitely. When I think the cool thing about the album itself, the whole album, is that I would say instead of embracing new genres, it was more like embracing familiar genres for me. So I was raised, my mom loved the Great American Songbook. And so I was kind of raised on that style of music. And I think that the other strong influence for me was I spent all of my summers in Arizona on a ranch and I was introduced to kind of classic country like Willie Nelson, Emmylou Harris, David Allen Coe. And I think that that also influenced me. And so the album has a lot of that to it. I also want to say one thing that was really important is that when I was thinking about what I wanted the album to sound like, I really, really loved what Robert Plant and Alison Krauss were doing with, you know, Band of Joy. And I said to my producer, I was like, you know, I really want that drum sound. I want that like Tom Waits drum sound. And Lauren was like, oh, you know, I actually know this drummer named Marco Giovino who played in the Band of Joy. And he, I wonder if he would come up and do this album with us. So Marco came up and brought, Marco doesn't really ever play. He plays a drum kit, but he also has like this Samsonite hard cover, hard case Samsonite suitcase full of other things that make sound. I thought for a second you were saying he's tapping on the suitcase because when I started this, this is just cajon, right? Or cajon and shaker or something. Like, I don't even, there's one that's like a wood thing with bottle caps and there's another thing with like rubber and then he's got this little circular thing that makes that weird sound in the beginning of revival. And so, whereas I would say all of my albums before that, the songs would come together from like a chordal place, like the guitar. I would play my guitar part and then we'd come in with the piano and then the drums would come up with that and the bass would play along with the drums. Every song on Haunted Heart started from drums first, which gave, I think, all the songs and revival, definitely this kind of grounded, rhythmic, almost like, I don't know, like it's a, it's a body kind of feel to all of the music. Like there's just this dark, cool, rooted drum sound. And so he would start playing the drums and then the bass player would play it. And then 
the guitar and the piano would kind of layer or the organ would like layer over that. So it was kind of a different way to record. And I love the way the songs sound on that album. But yet as a composition teacher, the chords are not super primitive, right? Let me actually play the bridge here. So yes, you have steel guitar, you have sounds of Americana, but you're not going to find those in a, even in a Wilco song, let alone a real Americana. <laughs> right, right, exactly. So it's like, it's for me, when I think, did you notice the bridge has moments for me, like the song has like a, I think of things in terms of light and dark, like the song has a pretty dark, dark sound, but then the bridge has moments of light. Do you hear that? Do you hear that I got it from like minor to major? And I think that that gives a like a, oh, you know, our souls being saved? Maybe not. And then we go back down in. The use of steel was a lot like, I could use strings here, but I can get basically the same thing from lap steel or pedal steel or whatever is playing here. Doing it in that super atmospheric way, as opposed to a straightforwardly country. Yeah, it gives it more of a shades of color. You could play it blatantly, certainly, but I think that the palette of Haunted Heart is a little bit more complex than what you normally find, which I love. Let me turn back to the narrative just for a second here. So it resolves itself by two and a half minutes in. The revival tent is coming down. The halt can walk. Doing something that is religious in this sinister overtone brings to mind that apocalypse is somehow right around the corner. So I, I guess it confused me a little that the narrative is moved such that the tent is coming down, but then you just bring back the same course as opposed to like tweaking it. You know, the man still got the heat as opposed to changing that somehow at the end to reflect the sentiments that you would expressed in terms of, I'm just here to see the show all is truth and make believe like, no, we're just repeating the chorus. You musically develop it, right? You throw in the gospel thing, but lyrically, like the story's already told. We're done by two and a half minutes, but let's just repeat the chorus a couple times as a musical gesture, not necessarily to expand the story. I never thought about that. That's a really good, I don't know why I didn't do that. Cause normally if I've moved the narrative a little further, I don't mind like changing the last chorus to reflect that. I guess, I mean, I think I wanted the sense that maybe is eternal. Do you know what I mean? Like he's always going to have the heat in his <laughs> And I'm always going to be questioning the validity of that. Yeah, actually, I almost said that, that that would be the reason for bringing it back. Is like, now it's a trope. It's a platonic numeral. It exists outside of time. And so you can, you can repeat it as many times as you want and sing along and get pulled up into it and have the gospel part, which also very restrained. Probably if I, if I was making this, if I was arranging this, like, Let's add an extra minute. You've got all these musicians in here and there's some really cool, like the little tinkly piano that's coming in with the organ flexing over it. A lot of pieces to play with. What, what is your relationship to the producer? We haven't really talked about that. I and mean, you were saying, this is the feeling I want, but are you like in there with every little, uh, no, the verse three needs a little more energy somehow put something. That whole process has evolved for me. So when I first went in to record my first album, I was like a deer in the headlights. I was a singer-songwriter. I could play my songs. I could sing my songs. I was good at harmony, but I knew nothing about the recording process. And it really is its own little world. And so 
I was very fortunate in that, you know, I was teaching at Berkeley and Kevin Berry was a friend of mine who ended up playing on the album. And he brought in Lauren Entress, who had just finished producing Laurie McKenna. And I loved her album and loved his work. And he just brought in this great group of musicians that ended up being a lot of the core people that I've continued to work with over the years. So Lorne is a wonderful producer. He allows people to play, but he also will make kind of really astute comments about, I don't know, a drum fill here. He's a drummer himself, or he'll be like, why don't you play this in halftime? So he'll make important decisions about the sound. We definitely like, he never made any suggestions about the songs, which I really appreciated because I felt very much like I knew what I was doing with the songs. And so he and I did a lot of work on my pop country phase. (laughs) And then he was the producer for Haunted Heart. And then I was the producer on The Hammer and the Heart. And then I brought him back to help me co-produce All Is Quiet. So he and I have had a long relationship together. And I think that Certainly, when I made the decision to be more vulnerable, to write what really mattered to me, having somebody that I trusted in the room was really, really, really important. Because I don't think I could have been vulnerable and not just vulnerable in the songs, but you know, when you're singing, you need to be able to experiment with stuff. You need to be able to try, oh, let me try this part. Hold on, let me try, let me just be silly for a minute. Let me just sing something really loudly and. If you're feeling insecure or self-conscious in that process, which I've also had experiences where that was happening, you can't really get a good performance. And I think that, so Lauren's been a great friend to me and a great collaborator for me. Well, let's travel back. I don't know if this is the deer in the headlights phase. You chose something for the second album, not the 2009 album, the 2011 album, Heaven to Heartache. The song you chose was Shave. Short little song, barely more than two and a half minutes. Was this written for you to sing or was this one of the Nashville ones that you were trying to, because you were clearly, you know, almost 30 or something by this point. Had you been there for a decade, like trying to hammer into the business by the time you're doing your solo albums? No. So I've had a really very interesting career in my life because after college, my sister was a singer and was a Broadway singer and did off-Broadway stuff. And I think she's six years older than I am. And kind of watching her go through the whole rejection process was like, oh, I'm not going to do that. So when I graduated from college, I had a degree in creative writing and I was like, I am going to be a writer. So I got a job and I was a television writer producer and I made movie trailers. I made the movie trailer for Schindler's List, for example, and I wrote the script and then I would go into the studio and put it all together. And then I was in a band at night. So we were in New York and I was singing in a band at night, producing commercials during the day. And the idea of combining, (laughs) I don't know why it like never occurred to me. They were like church and state. You know what I mean? Like the one was this and what was that? And I think I, for that band, I wrote like two songs, but I was like, ah. And then we moved to Boston and I quit my paying job and went to Berkeley as a student, went back to school and got another degree. And took my first songwriting class. And I literally felt like my head exploded. I was like, oh, like the angel sang. I'm like, this is what I meant to do for my whole life. But right after I graduated, because I was an older person. As a songwriting professor, people got PhDs in songwriting, or is that even a thing? 
No. Oh, then now it is. Now you can get a master's in education. But at that point, they didn't. So I graduated with another, it's a BM because it's a Bachelor of Music. And then we started having children and I was commuting to Nashville because I was like, I can't tour. I've got little kids. So I'm like, I'm going to go down and I'm going to, and Nashville was the place to be then for great songwriting. And I'm not sure. I mean, it probably is still the same, but this was really like a focus on like lyric driven songwriting, which is kind of what I was good at. So I commuted. I would go down for five days once a month and pretend like I lived there. Just be like, yeah, I'll be right over. I'm flying in from Boston. And I co-wrote with a bunch of people and I recorded a bunch and I had what they call a song plugger, which means I had somebody who was like my agent who was Uh repping me. And I came, I was very close to having a big hit many times and it never happened for me. Like I, they never got recorded or they just never became hits. Well, no, they never, like I would, could have been a contender. My songs were on hold, which means that an artist is interested in them. And my songs were on hold with everybody from George Strait, Martina McBride, Trisha Yearwood, Diamond Rio, Daughtry. I haven't had it. And and Daughtry even like took the song into the studio and then didn't end up recording it. So after I had this huge catalog of songs and our kids had grown up a little bit, my husband was like, you know, you should just sing these songs. You have all these great songs. Why aren't you singing them? And so I'm like, okay. (laughs) So that was when I restarted my performing career and came out with Brave and Wild. And then, and I was like, I'm going to be a country artist. So Shave is a true story in the sense that I wrote it, you know, my husband and I have this kind of morning routine where like he's shaving and I'm brushing my teeth and we're kind of talking about what the day is going to be like. And I was like, what if I took that and turned it into like a sexy love song? (laughs) And I remember going in, I wrote that with two people. So that's a co-write. A lot of my songs are written by my, just me, but that's a co-write. And I was like, here, I got this idea and I had this music that, you know, I'd written like the first verse. And so I played it for them. And I think they were like, huh, it's a really weird song, but okay, let's do it. And I think for me, like I chose that song for this podcast because I think it really is an example. Like you can hear me. I am singing with a Southern accent at times because I'm from New Jersey. I'm not even from Southern New Jersey. Like I'm from New Jersey. But I was trying so hard to be someone that people would like. You know, it really, for me, when I look at that whole phase of my writing, there was so much of like, if I'm like this, will you like me? If I'm like this, will you like me? And I love the song. Now, don't get me wrong, like out in a live, it's like so fun to play. You know, it's all about the fact that I married a swarthy. My husband is very swarthy, so he needs to shave every day. So it's a, it's a cute, fun, sexy song. But I think that it really exemplifies a time in my life when I was trying so hard to be accepted. So I chose it because I think it's such an important lesson to songwriters out there that, you know, really like you can chase it and chase it and chase it. But really, once you stop chasing and just sit with who you are and create songs that really matter to you. That's when people will come to you. That's been my experience.
the second album a total deer in the headlights there's a lot of country tropes to the music here but you also have i mean it's a combination of stuff it's got the i don't know if the aggressive honky-tonk piano is it seems like the bass is a little more active than i would expect there's some little flying riffs around and that just was the band that got together was this like a was this your touring band no this was like the producers people that he got together or something I recorded those songs in Nashville. So that's a Nashville, that's a Nashville group. And, you know, when you record songs in Nashville, it's insane because everybody is a musician. So I remember at one point, like this is, I was so naive, but at one point I'm like, I had the group assembled and I, I was like, I'm saying to the bass player, you know, I'm really looking, I really like what Brad Paisley's doing. And he starts laughing. I'm like, why are you laughing? He's like, cause I play with Brad Paisley. <laughs> I was like, Oh, well, just do what you do because I want what you you are doing. I'll never forget. Like, I think the piano player on that, I'm not sure it's on that one, but like I worked with like Moose Brown, like Moose Brown, Moose Brown wrote it's five o'clock somewhere and is not a piano player, but plays the guitar in Bob Seeker's Silver Bullet Band. And he was playing piano on my session. So and he's amazing. So, you know, it's like everybody's amazing. The drummer plays with Diana Ross and Elton John, like insane. So this is probably the second time that they played it. And I think the kind of writing, obviously, because I was trying to write commercial music at the time, it's not like it was very complex. They're like, oh, we, we understand what this is. We can make this happen. Well, especially that 50s blues rock bridge that you go into that. Although, you know, for me, growing up in the North, listening to a lot of artsy stuff. I don't know. 
like all Americana, all roots sort of lumped into one thing. But if you actually get down there, like, oh, that's a totally different thing. Like country and Western, both kinds having that blues rock bridge. Maybe that's a foreign incursion. Did you get any of that sense? Well, definitely. Well, and especially because I'm not a one, four, five, one kind of writer. So quarterly, I tend to throw stuff and going back to the fact that I usually extend my third line in my verse. People are like, what's going on here? It's so weird. But yeah, I think because those musicians are so used to kind of working within a form and working within a structure. I think they liked working with me because I was brought something different to the picture. I was brought to be like, oh, this is cool. You know, and oh God, you're borrowing, you're like using modal interchange. I don't know if anybody knows what that is, but you know, like I'm borrowing chords from other keys and putting them in my songs, which the Beatles do, by the way. But you know, like just having a moment where you're like, oh, we're in a different key and now we're going back, you know, that kind of thing. So again, dealing with the producer here, the ending there, it's sort of, I don't want to say cliche, but it's a trope, but having the violin lead it off, do it as a little solo. And then everybody comes in and it's the trash can ending thing that you extend out a little more. Like, do you remember how that happened? No, what's so interesting. So that is very different from recording anywhere else other than Nashville. So in Nashville, what they normally do is because everyone is performing at their A game, they keep all the tracks open all the time. So yes, there are moments where it's like, okay, the guitar is going to take the first half of the solo and the piano is going to take the second half. But everybody plays everything all at once. So they'll be, as the producer and except, as the except engineer... Except you, right? They, they overdub the... So as the engineer, sometimes some of those... It's almost like a film where in the sense that the movie kind of comes together once the editing process happens. And a lot of the same thing happens in Nashville, where sometimes the hook, the lead in, whatever happens to get us in and out of a bridge, we'll take one pass where, you know, the pedal steel player will do it. And then we'll take another pass where like the fiddle player is doing it. And then it's decided afterwards who is going to shine. So it's a very different process because you kind of don't have that, at least in the North, when I've recorded up here, you know, it's like, oh, I'll determine that in the studio at the time. I'll be like, no, I want a guitar solo here. And in Nashville, they kind of take turns. They'll be like, oh, let's do one with the piano solo. Let's do one with the guitar solo. And I'll decide later because you want to be able to have as many options as possible when you're mixing. Sure. But that means you're taking bits of what are essentially separate takes and putting them together, which... I guess only in the digital age can you actually do that. So it's not like this is the Nashville tradition. This is the Nashville with Pro Tools <laughs> tradition, which is something, I mean, I would think even the album that I did where I had a lot of remote people sending things in, I edited the crap out of their part in terms of fixing up the drums and lining things up. Like with your COVID album, where you sort of respecting the pristine character of what the guitarists were sending you, or were you being very ruthless of like, nope, remove that thing or did they send you you know they're sending you several takes or things like that yeah i mean the thing is that because it's duke levine and kevin barry i mean they're fabulous so it was a matter of choosing do i love this or do i love this like everything i can't think of like one song where i was like ah you know well there were times in the beginning like when i would send the track and we would be in that first stage where kevin would be like what about this i'd be like no 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 let's do something a little bit quieter or can you do something where you're you're muting the guitar so i would give direction at the beginning but they were so great no for me what happened with that i think on the harmony stuff 
that's where I was like, you know what? There are songs on All Is Quiet. There's a, an upbeat song called Time and Love and Gravity, which I had done this super ornate harmony thing. Ornate, like you can't, <laughs> 10 tracks. And it was like multi-layered, blah, blah, blah. And I thought it was really, really cool. But when I actually listened to it in the song, it felt like, oh, I've like gone too far. I've gone over the top and we're losing the meaning of the lyric. And I think if the song had been longer, if I'd had like a solo section, if we'd heard the chorus a few more times, maybe I would have been less ruthless. But in the end, I was just like, no, take that out. It was cool, but let's just take it out. And that happened a few times for me in All Is Quiet because I was like, there are definitely songs where I, another one, Diamond Days. I had done this whole big harmony thing. And this is a discussion like Lauren and I were like, he's like, Lauren's like, yeah, I got to tell you, like when you just sent the track, the guitar and vocal track, that for me was kind of magical. And I don't really want any harmony on this. So on that song, actually, that is the original. That's how it came out. So we didn't mess with it. They overlaid stuff on it, but that is my original vocal. Nothing was changed. Well, and that is what we were going to leave people on is time plus love plus gravity returning to the new album. It's a really nice 80s, you know, I guess just because there's a lot of reverb on the guitar. But I was trying to think, what song is this reminding me of? You know, but it, it's very appealing. It's a good thing to put at the end to send folks off to want to hear more of your music. I like this song because a lot of the songs on All Is Quiet are quiet and they're more ballad. And this is more mid-up-tempo. And I wrote it because I was talking to a friend of mine who is a physicist. (laughs) And he'd just been through this terrible breakup. And he said, you know what? Did you know that time moves slower on Earth than it does in space because of Earth's gravity? And I said, I did not know that. And he's like, you know, it's like, Because of my heartache, it's like I'm caught. I feel like I'm just going to be sad forever. And I was like, oh, you're being affected by love's gravity, which I thought was just the coolest thing. And so I'm like, I'm sorry, can I take your pain and write a song about it? And he was like, okay. And so I wrote a song for my friend about that. And it's all about the fact that, you know, it's about two people kind of being caught in this state, in this space, and I'll quote that on purpose, pun intended, of course, of not being friends, not being enemies, but you know how time just feels like it's so slow when you're caught in love's gravity. And I really like the song. It's really fun to sing. All right. Well, thanks so much for sharing your, we didn't even get super academic, but there was so much to say about these. You've had such a really interesting journey here. An obvious craftsperson ship. That's not a word coming out of these tunes. Anyway, it was, a, it was a lot of fun listening to your to your albums. And I'm glad that you didn't have 20 of them. because It was a nice, a nice manageable. Thank you. Thank you. Well, you never know. I'm working on a new one. No, I <laughs> thank you so much, Mark. I really appreciate it. It was great talking to you.
Thanks so much to Susan. That was a very satisfying interview. Susan really enjoyed it. We actually ended up continuing to talk for another half hour. A little bit of that was about her duo, Honest Mechanic. So I'm going to provide that short discussion with an additional song for the supporter version of this episode. Just tacked on to this file after my normal wrap-up here to get the supporter version. You have to either sign up through the paid version of Apple Podcasts or at patreon.com slash nakedly examined music. Doing the latter will also get you access to my notes for these episodes. Very detailed. But before we get to that or wrap up for the rest of you, I'll tell you about how I have an interview going up next with Chastity Brown. Great Minneapolis-based singer-songwriter now. Some Americana, some pop, some blues, a lot of stuff going on. And like Susan, a very sharp lady. So please come back for that. I also just talked to Mike Lindup from the band Level 42, a really amazing, interesting person. That's all I've got in the hopper, but I have some exciting things scheduled that I don't want to announce yet. But one of them is an absolute bucket list artist for me. But I will leave you in suspense as to their identity. Anyway, I hope you're doing well. Less than through the heat wave. Keep on music in. Until next time, this is Mark Meyer signing off. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply.